Earful of Leadership is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host, and the content of this podcast is not meant to provide any legal or medical advice. Hi, and welcome to the Earful of Leadership podcast. We're so glad you're here. We're joined today by gender in the workplace experts, David G. Smith and W. Brad Johnson to talk about Athena's workplace allies and mentorship in the military setting. They've published two books, Athena Rising, How and Why Men Should Mentor Women, and The Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Great to be here, Nicole. Thank you. So would you two please kindly introduce yourselves to our listeners and talk a little bit about your works? Yeah, certainly. So this is uh, David, and and I am a professor of sociology. I teach at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. And um, I met my my good friend here and colleague Brad uh, at the Naval Academy, and we taught together there for a little over seven years. And as a sociologist, I do all my research in the area of the intersection of gender work and family. So I started looking at dual career families, looking at dual military couples in particular, um, and later on retention and gender career paths, uh, bias and performance evaluations. And, and now over the last uh, nine or 10 years now with Brad, looking at cross-gender relationships, including mentoring and allyship. And so Brad and I recognized very early on that we had an overlap and a common uh, interest in, in our research and in, in terms of cross uh, gender uh, mentorships in particular. Mm-hmm. And that led to our first book, Athena Rising, uh, which came out in 2016. And then about a year later after the book came out in 2017, as Me Too was going widespread, uh, Brad and I got pulled into more conversations around the topic of allyship and what it meant for men to show up more broadly as allies in the workplace and what that, what that looked like. And so that led to our new book, uh, Good Guys, which just came out here in October. And so we're excited about that. And I'll let Brad tell you a little bit more about uh, himself. Yeah. So I'm Brad. Glad to be here with you. Um, I am a clinical psychologist. I actually got my start in the Navy uh, in the Medical Service Corps as a clinical psychologist. And um, and then for about the last 22 years, I've been a professor at the Naval Academy. And as Dave said, that's where we began collaborating around the issue of gender and especially the role men can play in equity and fairness in the workplace. Um, and just so uh, I think the audience kind of has a sense of how we approach these books, you know, Dave and I were very excited early on about our idea for uh, Athena Rising, how men can really lean into mentoring and sponsoring. And when we started sharing that idea with people, hey, we're going to write this book. Um, people would look at us and say, you realize you're two dudes, right? You're, you're two men and you're writing a book about women. Is that really a good idea? And, and so it's important. Um, we certainly understood that. And, and so our methodology has been to take all of the research we can find on cross-gender relationships and what really works well. But then we've done large studies of our own and our studies involve interviewing lots of women across professions, uh, typically women at the very top of their game, usually leaders in organizations. 
And in the case of Athena Rising, we asked them, hey, have you had a male mentor? Most of them had. And then we would ask, well, what, what did he do behaviorally that you most appreciated? Um, and then we replicated that with good guys, you know, and, but we were asking in that case, what did he do as an ally? How did he show up? maybe beyond mentoring that really made a difference uh, in the workplace. And in some cases for both books, women nominated men they thought were particularly good examples of mentors or allies. And in some cases we got to interview those gentlemen uh, as well. So, so that's what both books are all about, kind of jam-packed with, you know, what I would frame as what women would like men to know about mm-hmm. being better in the workplace. Absolutely. I agree. And I really appreciate the practical, straightforward, honest instruction on what men need to hear. So I've really enjoyed going through them so far. Let's dive into it a little bit. And who or what is an Athena? Yeah, well, that's a really great question to lead off with. So, you know, when Dave and I were were sort of thinking about uh, the first book, how how men can be more effective mentors, one of the things we kept finding in the research was that men often don't see women uh, in the way that uh, that that Dave and I, and I think others, uh, easily see the women we work with at the Naval Academy. You know, these are these are future leaders uh, in combat of sailors and Marines. They are remarkable, um, and we feel so privileged to work with them. But the research shows a lot of men have biases that are often implicit about women. So, you know, there's the women are wonderful effect in psychology, which means that when you ask men, what do you think of women? They'll say, oh, they're great, they're wonderful, they're caring, they're really nice. But what you're not hearing is they're they're take charge leaders, right? They're extremely competent at their jobs. And if men are not seeing women that way, then they're not going to promote them. They're not going to sponsor them. They're not going to mentor. So Dave and I felt it was really important to frame women deliberately as future leaders, as competent, as um, people that we would all want to work for. And and so the metaphor we settled on was was the goddess Athena, just because she's so aspirational. You know, she was the goddess of war, certainly, but she was also the goddess of diplomacy and literature and a variety of other things. And it just kind of hit close to home with a lot of the women at the Naval Academy that Dave and I, uh, you know, were working with. So message to men from Athena was be careful about how you frame women and be deliberate about that. Um, mm-hmm. And I believe that that's a particular type of bias that you talk about, right? When they use those types of phrases to describe women, which are, you know, so amiable and kind and compassionate, but really not describing their ability as leaders to be assertive. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's actually, you know, it goes beyond just the bias. It goes into, you know, another form of sexism that's benevolent sexism and that, Mm -hmm. you know, again, on the outside, it sounds so positive, right? Because it, it often it's this, this, this language of being nice and women are wonderful and, but it can also take on this uh, protective uh, feature as well in there or to treat or to treat women differently, right? That they're somehow they're fragile uh, and they have to be protected and they, and, you know, we have to keep them away from certain challenges and things like that. And that again, is very undermining 
right, in terms of not empowering women and not seeing them again as as the leaders that they are, that they do need something else from men and that men have to then swoop in to rescue women. And that is not at all the messaging here. That's right. So what you've seen in your research at the Naval Academy in the workplace in the military, what are the unique challenges that women face in the workplace? Well, how long's your show, Nicole? But uh, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, Dave. Uh, jump, jump in, and I'll follow you. Yeah, I mean, there's so many here, but we can highlight a few that I think are are important. And, and one, I think, from a leadership perspective, that's it's really important is is valuing women's expertise. And women's expertise is not valued in a number of different ways. And it and this takes on different a lot of different facets. And it can be everything from dismissing her expertise. Or, or just not acknowledging it whatsoever. And, and this can happen in terms of, of, of not using rank and titles and things like that when, when we do for our male counterparts out there. Mm. Um, and uh, another one is when um, we see in meetings, for example, or in, in different settings where mixed gender, if a woman gives a, uh, puts an idea out there in front of everybody, um, often it's just kind of overlooked. It's not seen for the for the importance, the contribution that it makes. And then, but then other men, you know, a few, a few guys later might make the same, you know, same contribution repackaged as his own. And now it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And again, because it came from a dude, now suddenly it's it's better in some way, or it deserves our attention. And so, mm-hmm. others, you know, recognizing expertise. Uh, calling out competence, seeing women's competence in there as as leaders, I think is one of the one of the big challenges that we're we're always faced with. I think from a leadership perspective, the second one that comes to mind is kind of the style of leadership, and it gets again mm-hmm. back to competence in in a variety of different ways. And so, you know, again, the traditional perspective about what leadership looks like from a masculine set perspective is really about this agentic, directive kind of command and control, authoritative. Um, being in charge, right? Perspective of masculine uh, leadership. But if a woman does that, right, then suddenly, you know, she's not taking charge. You know, she's your favorite B word out there. Well, not the other one. And, um, you know, and again, so they get penalized for 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 leading in that way, whether it's authentic or not. But then if they if they lead in a more traditionally feminine way, so this is the more participative and democratic and collaborative. Then they're not seen as being strong leaders, right? So mm-hmm. they get penalized for not, you know, for that. So that plays out in a variety of different ways. But this this double bind, this damned if you do and damned if you don't, perspective that women often talk about in terms of a tightrope or a tension that they're always kind of working with others and trying to see what what lands effectively. As guys, mm-hmm. it's something we 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 don't deal with, right? And, mm-hmm. and it's not something that I would ever think of naturally. Um, I might think about how I can be most effective as a leader, but I'm certainly not thinking about it from right this kind of gendered perspective that women are contending with all the time. Brad, yeah, yeah, a couple others that you know we I, we hear about and see in the research frequently. Nicole, one is what we think of as the maternal wall or the motherhood penalty, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, just just the fact that she's a woman means that men men typically will assume she's a ticking time bomb of maternity, right? She's she's not a good investment in my mentoring because she's going to just have a baby any minute, right? It's kind of absurd. You know, men don't even um, 
know if she's a mother or not, but we just assume. And then if we find out she is a mom, then it's even worse because now now mm -hmm. we don't put her forward for promotions. Uh, we assume she wouldn't be interested in advancement because she's a quote, busy mom. So I think that bias is alive and well. Um, there's certainly the prove it again bias for women, right? And so men like Dave and I get promoted on potential. You know, mm -hmm. there's a new job and there's eight criteria. If Dave and I meet four, we're likely to volunteer for it and say, yeah, we're ready. And other people see us that way, right? Yeah, he's, you know, he's got potential. Let's go ahead and give him the shot. Women have to prove it again. They have to have done the job before or they don't, they are not considered for it. Um, mm -hmm. So women don't get pushed forward on potential. And then one other one uh, deals with women of color. Uh, in mm -hmm. particular, and it's it's the whole double jeopardy thing that women uh, of color will talk about. You know, they they receive all of the bias and the pushback related to both their race and their gender, um, and it it means for them that they have to work twice as hard. You know, to get uh, half as far, and many. Mm -hmm many black women will tell you they just feel invisible in the workplace. And so those are often things, again, as Dave said, we men just don't see. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The challenges are certainly multi-layered and multifaceted for a lot of people. And I imagine that it's compounded for uh, people of color and those additional minorities. And I did uh, watch the movie or the Pixar movie that you recommended in your book, Pearl. And I thought that really highlighted the, the challenges of initially going into the workplace and being faced with a, a male-centric dominated area and those changes that a woman would have to make. And just a funny tidbit also from some of your work that I thought was interesting, even about the temperature in the workplace, how it's set for a male preference. And just all of those little things that progressively add up where it, it's a little bit extra effort for a woman to feel not only included, but even comfortable in the space that she's working in. Yeah, and in so many ways, we see that around the military too, With a, when it comes to equipment and protective equipment, that again, historically and traditionally has been designed for men, but today has not been thought about, right? About, all right, so we have different uh, body types and physiology and things that we have to consider when it comes to designing things just for the protective aspects, if not the, the rest of the one equipment that we need to do our mission. Mm -hmm. And certainly we saw that, you know, made the news with NASA, for example, you know, they didn't have uh, two spacesuits, so two women could actually go on a spacewalk, right? And it was like, well, when would you ever have that? Mm -hmm. so here we are. <laughs> We've had that. Right. So. right. So dealing with these challenges and trying to get men more involved and willing to be included, what do men need to understand about overcoming the zero-sum bias of gender equality in the workplace? Yeah, great question, Nicole. And actually, Dave and I have just written about this with one of our colleagues, Katika Roy. And, you know, the, the research on, on zero-sum thinking is really, really clear, you know, just initially leaving gender even out of it. But zero-sum thinking is prevalent. And, and it's this notion that um, in any situation, for me to win or benefit, um, someone else is going to lose, right? There's no way that we can both be winners in this situation. And I think for a long time, especially as uh, increasing numbers of women have come into the workplace, men as a dominant group have labored under this fallacy 
that if the workplace gets more fair or just and equitable and more women are sharing in jobs and leadership, that clearly this means that men have to sacrifice or lose or, you know, they're, they're going to lose ground. Uh, they won't get the promotions. And what you find is really something entirely different. What we find is when women are fully included and you have more women uh, coming into the workplace and more women promoting to serious leadership, those companies, those institutions, I would say those military units actually do better. They perform better. And, and so actually the entire entity grows, right? And there's actually more opportunity. And we certainly see this in corporate America. Those companies with better gender balance and, and better gender balance and leadership, they just get big, get bigger, they get more effective, they get more profitable, and everybody wins financially and otherwise. So I think that's something men have to work on grasping. Um, this whole uh, notion that I'm going to lose out somehow if I have more female colleagues, just mm-hmm. not supported by the evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we also see that, you know, that there's also a sense of entitlement there that goes with that, right? That somehow that because we're men and we happen to have been in these traditional uh, settings where we've been in power and and positions of power and influence for the majority of the time, that suddenly somehow these are, we're entitled to these jobs and to these positions. And so I think, you know, getting over some of those, uh, I think as well, are really, really helpful. The, The other part about that, uh, the workplace change, right, is that it becomes a better place to work, right? Mm-hmm. It's not that it's just becoming more diverse. It's actually becoming a more enjoyable place to work. People feel like they can thrive there. They can be more authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, they can, it, it's helpful in having these diverse perspectives because it helps in decision-making. And so, again, all of our jobs become easier and better and we become more effective. And I think, again, to me, that's that capacity building notion that we all want out there. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, I guess I'm just thinking about the effect that it has in the military and women coming more into positions of leadership in the military and how that's going to affect it, especially when we are rated so often. And I know that that's something that I faced in a small cohort, knowing that we were colleagues, but we were also being rated against each other. So how does that impact the relationship with the gender differences? Is there a more sense of a competition or does that reinforce that sense of entitlement of I'm in a male centric area, I'm ready to be the leader and women are new to this and maybe not ready to be here? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to defer to Dave because he's been doing research on this very issue. Yeah, yeah, I think it, it. You know, so the answer is it depends, uh, but but it depends on on some some key aspects of the culture and of the nature of the organization. And so, again, when there are really small numbers of women, when we're talking, you know, when there's a lot of onlys in the group out there. Um, it can it can lead to some kind of tokenistic behaviors as you think about that in particular. And um, women are seen in a particular way, and maybe they're they're not as threatening in that sense, right? Because there's only there's only a, a very small number. The challenge with that one is that sometimes that can lead to within the group of women an intense competition, right? Because there is this mm-hmm. sense that this is that tokenistic behavior that that sense that we're competing with each other, not with the broader group. Uh, mm-hmm. to be there. And, and you know, 
fortunately, I think most organizations, although you can you can still make the argument that a lot of direct combat units today that where women are coming in as the onlys or just a very small group, that some of that tokenistic behavior we have to watch out for. Mm-hmm. Right? Really about, no, we're, it's part of, we're competing. We are competing, right? There is competition there, but it's part of the overall group. Um, I think as you see the numbers increase, that changes, that begins to shift, right? And men and women will start to look at each other in a very different way. Um, much more in the sense that, hey, as peers and as colleagues, yes, we're competing, but yes, we also eventually learn that we have to work together and collaborate mm-hmm. for all of us to succeed, to get the mission done at the end of the day. And that, you know, the rest of it will kind of shake out on its own um, again. But but we can't be out there kind of undermining each other in a way that, again, is going to undermine the mission and the unit as well. Mm-hmm. This is something that I'm personally interested in because I've stepped into this new role of being a leader and I am a subject matter expert in my field. I'm the only one here doing what I'm doing. There is another civilian counterpart, but I'm the only military representative doing what I do. And I find it challenging sometimes um, when I'm challenged in the position of what I'm doing, how I'm running the program, or even circumvented. And I think to myself, is this because of my lower rank? Is this because I'm a female? Is this because um, maybe I haven't asserted myself? Or, you know, what are the reasons behind that? So I, I find it interesting in my desire to want to be included and respected for my position of being the subject matter expert. But why then am I being excluded or challenged in what I'm doing? Is it related to rank or gender? you know, and, and how do I overcome that? Yeah, it, that's such a good point, Nicole. And, and Dave, I think there are multiple levels here. You know, uh, <clears throat> I think that often men um, are socialized and we, and I'm uh, in the military and other male centric places where there are mostly men, um, the habit and the bias of not even noticing women, first of all, right? Don't even see them in the room, let alone think about her as a subject matter expert like you are, um, you know, that just maybe doesn't register. She's a woman. She's nice. Um, but I haven't really linked her with subject matter expert. And and then too often, and gosh, this is going to absolutely be true in the military, men are the center of attention always, right? When guys walk in the room, we look to them, right? When the guy sits down at the table for the meeting, we all expect him to talk first, you know, especially if he's a senior male. And the problem with that is too often that guy does talk first, even when he's not the subject matter expert in the room. You know, mm-hmm. he, he just fills the space uh, with his thinking on a topic rather than do what Dave and I recommend to men, and that's decenter. Uh, it's a really easy technique for me as a senior male in that meeting to say, well, I, that's a good question, and I, I have some thoughts, but I don't want to speak first because Nicole's our subject matter expert, and I'd love to hear from her what she thinks. So, Nicole, what do you think? You know, there are a lot of ways that I can decenter and also um, make it really clear to everyone in the room what I think about you right? And Mm -hmm. your expertise and your competence, you know, so I can use personal narratives. I can say, hey, you know, I've learned a lot from Nicole on this 
you know, topic, whatever it might be. And I really value what I've learned. I'd, I'd love to hear what she thinks about this. So there's so many ways, Dave and I describe it as doing, you know, it's the Super Bowl's coming up. It's it's the lateral pass, right? I can, mm. I can hand off the ball or pass the mic to somebody who often you know, her voice is not heard and it's an easy thing to do. She's very mm -hmm. competent, but in this culture, people don't look to her as a subject matter expert, even when she is. And so if, if you're a woman and you're one of the only, and you're feeling mm -hmm. like an imposter, you're not alone. And very often these environments make you feel like an imposter. They, it's not that, you know, that's something in you, that's something that the culture um, I, I think puts on women that they're they're unicorns, they're odd. We're not sure what to make of them, and that can make you doubt yourself. Right. It certainly feels a, a bit of a personal challenge. Is this something that needs to be confronted to reestablish the role, or do you just let it go and wait for the opportunity to reestablish that position? You know, I guess we'll play it case by case. I'll have to send you all an email and let you know how it plays out later. But I really appreciate um, what you shared about um, uh, letting that deferment go to the person that's the subject matter expert. And I did read about that in your book, The Good Guys. And we've talked a lot about the challenges that women face and the differences and what's going on in the workplace. But let's transition to more of that positive side and talk about workplace allies and the great that can come from it. So speaking to the men out there, how can men engage with women more intentionally and be better allies in the workplace interpersonally? and give us some instruction for that as well. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And, and so we'll, we'll try to hit some highlights here because there's so much of it, but so- Yeah, me, a whole book about it, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. And you know, one of the things that we found, I, and I think this is helpful to, to kind of think about these in categories, but um, we, we looked at allyship and, and certainly men and women who we interviewed talked about it this way, that, that allyship is really thinking about how do I, so from, from the first part of it is interpersonal allyship. How do I show up individually holding myself accountable for my own language, my own behavior, the kinds of relationships I have with my female colleagues at work and, and supporting them and being collaborative with them and then creating, you know, and, and developing and being, you know, a, uh, an advocate for gender equity and fairness and justice. So that's all about me and my relationships uh, in the workplace. The easy part, we call it of allyship, mm -hmm. because I only have to worry about myself. And <laughs> the hard part is the public allyship or systemic allyship. And that's where I have to do those same things for myself, but I also have to do it for others. So now I have to, when I hear others, something happen, I have to hold them accountable and right. So that may be some confronting and that's challenging. Um, when there are biases within the process or the practice in my organization, I'm now accountable for that as well. So I've got to, I have to do something when I see something there and, and that can be challenging. And, and the men that we talked to, um, and this is a lot of very senior men said that it's challenging because they feel like there's a certain amount of risk they're taking personal professional risk and putting themselves out there publicly, mm -hmm. putting some skin in the game. Uh, some of the guys would say, yeah, I felt like, you know, I was going to lose my bro card, you know, or man card or lose, you know, violate that bro code out there or something. And, yeah. and, and so there is this, you know, this very palpable sense that uh, there are expectations about who we are as men 
and what's okay and what's not okay to do. And so there's some of the overcoming of that. But so around interpersonal allyship, and then maybe I'll let Brad share some of the public systemic ones. Um, it's interesting in both Athena Rising and Good Guys, the number one thing that women told us that they most appreciated in, in their allies and mentors was a, it was their listening skills. And the one, mm -hmm. one thing that they would like men to become better at was their listening skills. Uh, and so, you know, we, we asked them, so what do you mean exactly? What is it about the listening in particular? And they said that, well, it was a, it was a listening with a certain amount of humility. These, these men had a genuine curiosity uh, to learn uh, from women. They, they didn't go in approaching it that, hey, I have all the answers here and just tell me your, your problems, little lady, and I'll help, I'll fix those for you. Um, <laughs> the same sense that they weren't problem solving either. They were listening to learn, right? They were not problem solve or, or gosh, you know, you're going to tell me the problem and I'm going to tell you how to fix yourself, right? It's not that women are broken or need to be fixed, right? The, they're not the problem here. Um, and, and I think that humility goes a long way, right, in terms of that listening and how we can do that. That learning orientation was really important because one of the challenges with allyship, and interestingly, you know, we talk to men, most men t will tell you that they believe in gender equity, if you ask them, they mm -hmm. believe in gender equality. They think it's important for their, their colleagues at work. They think it's important for their family members, and, and they want it. Um, and some, because they believe it, they think they're actually doing everything they can possibly do to create gender equity out there. The reality is that in many cases, they're not, right? They, mm -hmm. if you believe it and you say it doesn't mean you're actually doing the work of it. The challenge is if you don't get the, the feedback, right? You don't have close colleagues where you have a, a trusted relationship who can talk to you about how, how you're doing at these things that hold you accountable when, when needed out there and people to collaborate with and do these things, then you're, you're probably not doing everything you need to be doing. And so, you know, developing that humility to be able to have those kinds of trusted relationships is really, really important. The, the other thing that, you know, that men talk, told us uh, in, in the challenges of, of becoming better allies was, you know, I need to understand women's experiences and how they might experience the workplace differently, right? Mm -hmm. Because that understanding is what's going to help me know where can I, when I have the opportunity to help, where can I, wh what is it that I can do at that moment to be able to be better at that? And so men talked to us about they needed to have these relationships to be able to understand. And in and, and so many ways that can be challenging if you don't have those trusted relationships, right? You got to develop it. And it's like, wow, how do we do that? How do we become close enough that, you know, you'll talk to me very openly and authentically about what's going on and, and then I can learn how I can help. And so some of the guys told us that, you know, to get over some of that, they, they, they really needed to start by self-educating, becoming smart on the issues in particular. And then as they did that, then they could approach women that they were good friends with and say, you know, hey, I've been reading this book and been trying to learn a little bit, little bit more about how to be a better ally. And would it be okay if I asked you about maybe some of the, your experiences and, you know, what, what, what's one thing I could do this week to make your experiences in the workplace better? Mm -hmm. Keep it really kind of low key and not make too many, you know, the other one is not making assumptions about what she might want out there. Mm -hmm. So really the, starting with developing that awareness and, and not making assumptions about who she is and, and what she might need or want out there for her career um, is a great place to start with that. Excellent. Yeah. And Nicole, do you want me to talk about just a few of the public things? Is this a good time for that? Yes, please. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So um, 
so on the public side, right, this is this is where Dave and I just sort of describe as putting more skin in the game, right, for guys. It's one thing to show up and be a good interpersonal friend and colleague, and that's important, but it's harder for men to do the public stuff because this makes me do something on the public stage where everyone's watching me, and that can feel more uncomfortable for men. So just a few. When I see something in a meeting, I have got to have better situational awareness. I've got to notice what's going on, especially with my female colleagues in a meeting. Good example is the interruption, you know, or what's called the manterruption. Um, <laughs> you know, we know that women get interrupted about three times more often than men do when they're talking. And, and often as men, we just don't see it because it doesn't happen to us as much and we don't notice it. We have to start noticing it. And then when I do, I have to be willing to call that out, right? So, and I don't have to get all confrontational and go to DEFCOM, you know, when I'm confronting someone about that. But I can just say, hey, Dave, you, uh, hold that thought. Nicole was onto something here, and I really want to hear what she said. I'd like her to finish her thought. You know, really easy intervention, not hard. Or if Dave, um, you know, Dave talked about women's ideas being. Uh, co-opted by men a little earlier. And if I see that, by the way, that's called having your idea bro-appropriated. And if that happens, I can say, hey, Dave, that is a good idea. It, it, you know, you're right on. Nicole did have a great idea 15 minutes ago. And that I, <laughs> I, I can affirm you know, where that idea came from. It's a really mm -hmm. easy thing. But for me to do that, I got to be aware. I've got to watch mm -hmm. that stuff. And, and that makes me uh, more of a public ally, I think. Another one is, you know, that moment we've all been there. Uh, in a meeting when that really sexist comment gets made or the the harassing joke gets told, right? And mm -hmm. we know this happens in the military. Too often in that moment, men freeze up, right? There's this actual thing called bystander paralysis. And so Dave and I recommend the two-second rule for men and, and for anyone, actually. So there it is. That joke's just been told. Everyone looks uncomfortable. No one's saying anything. You have to say something. You've got to disrupt it. You can't wait. Mm -hmm. So I may just say, ouch. We love the ouch technique because saying that disrupts what just happened. And now everyone in the room looks at me. And now I can articulate what was not okay, right? I may mm -hmm. say, hey, we don't do that here. Or I didn't mm -hmm. find that funny. Or that's an outdated stereotype. Or I'd really appreciate it if you'd refer to our female colleagues as women, not girls. Uh, mm -hmm. I... I can do it, but I got to disrupt first. And so mm -hmm. just say, ouch, give yourself a couple seconds to articulate what didn't land the right way. And then when you do that, you have to own it, right? I'm not going to say, hey, Dave, dude, Nicole's in the room. Uh, that That is so not an ally strategy, right? Because it conveys mm -hmm. to men, hey, if Nicole wasn't here, we could definitely be sharing that joke. Mm -hmm. So I have to say, what is wrong with that with me? I got to own it. I got to use I statements. And then one last thing I'll share on the public domain, Nicole, is the out loud sponsorship. And for various reasons, men are reluctant to loudly sponsor women. You know, I think some men are kind of creeped out about what people will think if they're talking about women in such a positive way. They may wonder, hey, what's going on? Or, you know, the rumors mm -hmm. started. Men need to overcome that. That's not her fault. That that That's your discomfort. And part of the problem is you may not be sponsoring enough women, you know, that that feels awkward for you. So litmus test question for men, are you talking about 
talented junior women that you're mentoring when she's not even in the room, right? You mm -hmm. have to talk about her behind her back. It's good that you're saying it to her face too. She should hear that from you. It's very affirming. But you got to be talking about her up the chain of command, as it were, when she's not mm -hmm. there. And if you're not putting her forward loudly like that publicly, if you're not her raving fan, I think mm -hmm. you're, you're not you're not really sponsoring women the way you need to. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Really wonderful, practical instruction for men. And I have to say that as a recipient of some of those behaviors, it really does mean a lot. I have someone that I currently work with that um, he does listen to me very intently. He's receptive to the experiences that I have, um, supportive of what I'm going through, gives instruction of advice on how I could handle situations. And I have seen him publicly defer and say, she's the subject matter ex expert, let's ask her. And it really does reinforce and, and validate. And I have so much trust and respect in him and in his ability to be his own expert as well, you know, so it kind of creates that mutually beneficial relationship. And now we have an excellent working relationship moving forward. And I would just love for that to continue with other male coworkers. So yeah, that sounds like a Dave and I have a hashtag for that guy. Go bro. Go. Uh, yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. It's excellent. So stepping on from that with the workplace allies um, and got, diving a little bit deeper into the mentorship realm and that, requires a little bit more of a, a personal connection, right? So what are the benefits of cross-gender mentorship between male and females? Yeah. Dave, do you want to jump in and I'll follow? I'll, I'll, I'll back clean up here. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly we, we so benefits are for men, women, and the organization, right? And, and across the board. And I think it's pretty clear that, um, that mentoring broadly, the, the benefits of that, but in particular, we do find in our, our research and, and others that when women are mentored by men, that they, again, they're, they're getting paid more, they have more opportunities for promotion, um, and they're, they're just moving faster in their, in their organizations out there. And uh, don't want the guys out there to get too big of a head here. That's not because they're being, <laughs> men are suddenly somehow better mentors. No, I mean, it's just because we tend to be in the positions of power and influence where we can we can do some of the advocacy that again maybe more senior women can't. The the other thing, you know, why men too is that because there just often aren't enough senior women. And you, you probably look around your own organization, right, and go, gosh, okay. you know, for all the junior women here, are there enough senior women to mentor all of them? And Probably not in most cases, right? And they have day jobs and they have full-time jobs that are really important. And so it's it wouldn't be fair to really ask them to do that. So important that men do that. Again, the benefits for the organization, I think, are are well established, and that again, we're creating you know more retention, less attrition, uh, in particular for women. When we we do this. That's because again, they they see they're developing more organizational commitment that the organization is committed to them, and they identify with the organization. So for us, that's really important as military uh, to to be identifying with our profession and see that as an important identity in us out there. So that's all great. And then, you know, it's really interesting, and this gets overlooked too often, the benefits for men and as, as mentors. And, and this actually works both ways, men who are mentored by women and men who are mentoring women. And that we see that 
because again, they're diversifying their network of mentees and mentors that they have an increased access to, to different kinds of information, right? That they wouldn't have otherwise had knowledge from other people out there, which makes them better leaders. They have these more diverse, broad networks, both internal to their organization and because their mentees and mentors are, are networked outside their organization too. So that can have a lot of great benefits for us as leaders. And then mm-hmm. I, I think the, the most important piece here, I think to Brad and I, that we find is this enhanced or increased interpersonal skills. So this is more empathy, higher emotional intelligence, uh, better communication skills, all of which, right, we know leads to better leadership and, and make it more effective in your organization. So great benefits all the way around there. The, the last part of that is that it's not just for the organization because you get to take that home with you. So at the end of the day, you think about men who have these enhanced uh, interpersonal skills that you get to take them home and that makes you a better partner and a better parent too. So mm-hmm. just a win-win-win across the board as we begin to think about diversifying our mentoring networks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just a few other thoughts. I think I think Dave really captured that nicely. And um, we also did, in terms of another WIFM or what's in it for guys when they do this, um, there's this interesting research, and it, and it gets to some real gender bias in the workplace, Nicole, but when, when a woman, especially if she's sort of uh, one of the only senior women in, in an organization like the military, if she loudly sponsors a junior woman for promotion, on aggregate, she's going to take a hit in her annual evaluations because she's showing gender favoritism, right? Wow. Yeah, it's totally unfair. And then when a guy like Dave and I does exactly the same thing, you know, we, we loudly sponsor a junior woman, we on aggregate take a bump up in our, our annual evaluations. Why? Because we're gender champions, you know, so there's this really unfair disparity, but it just gets to the point Dave was making that we guys have nothing to lose and everything to gain from mentoring women. And and then just one other best practice, you know, I think sometimes the military struggles with how do we get guys off the fence and get them deliberately uh, mentoring women? And this is, you know, has been especially difficult since Me Too, right? All the research is showing that men are running for the hills and they're reporting they're uncomfortable mentoring women. They're concerned about, you know, what could happen. And a lot of that is just flat out ridiculous false narrative, you know, that women are somehow dangerous to interact with in the workplace. And all of us need to push back on that. Best practice, two of them I I would commend to anybody in leadership, but I think the military has a lot to learn from these two examples. Number one, reverse mentoring. Uh, Procter & Gamble a number of years ago realized they were not promoting and retaining women. Um, So they started pairing these high talent junior women coming in the door with senior men uh, in the company, Mm -hmm. but it was reverse mentoring. So she was supposed to be his mentor and kind of teach him important things about what is it like as a woman at my level, you know, things that she's recently learned in her education that he's really out of touch with. These Mm -hmm. were so successful because these men were benefiting so much from these relationships that pretty soon these guys started mentoring and sponsoring the women they were paired with, and they became these Mm -hmm. really rich reciprocal relationships that, that, you know, over a very short amount of time, pushed far more women into serious leadership roles. 
And then the other one Dave and I love is the J.P. Morgan 36-minute pledge. So J.P. Morgan was in a similar situation. They were not promoting or retaining women. So they started asking men deliberately to take a 36-minute pledge where these guys would agree, I'm going to spend 30 minutes a week taking a junior woman to coffee and just asking her about her career aspirations and how I can contribute. I'm going to spend five minutes a week loudly um, congratulating a woman on a one on a win or an achievement uh, mm-hmm. she's had recently, and then I'm going to spend at least one minute a week telling other more senior people in the organization what she achieved. So, kind of getting mm-hmm. that sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Simple thing: thirty-six minutes a week. I'm going to commit to as a senior male, and and it's really reaped benefits. So, the beauty of that is these guys that are anxious about mentoring. Um, the organization is saying, hey, uh, put your anxiety aside because we're asking you to make this a commitment and it's crucial to your leadership. Mm-hmm. That's really wonderful success stories. And I'm very happy to hear about the benefits, especially in that reverse mentoring. I find that so unique, especially in the position that I am in with this podcast, because I'm so hungry for leadership advice and to learn and to gain. And I feel like a sponge just ready to absorb. But I find it really uh, humbling and unhonoring that there would be an organization that thought, okay, now a female junior person coming in, you can also provide some insight and give some feedback. That's really excellent. Um, Brad and Dave, you both talked a lot about the military in your last two responses, and I'd like to transition over into that as well, since that's a a bit that we talk about here on the Earful of Leadership podcast. Um, Can you provide some insight and describe the culture of mentorship and the expectation of leadership competency in the military? And a follow-up to that, if the military has such a strong emphasis on leadership performance, why are there so few mentorship programs? Wow. Oh, you, that, that's a <laughs> tough one. Nicole, you're, you're hard on us. That's, we're going to have to really think about <laughs> I think I'm hard on on the setting. You know, these are just these are my views, my personal views. They're not representative of the DoD or any military component. But as you know, I'm part of the military mentors organization, and you know, Chevy connected us. So this is something that I'm absolutely passionate about. So you guys have done so much research, and I really just want to hear your insight and the research that supports this. What what is that culture of mentorship? And especially coming in, there is this expectation of leadership competency, yet no formal program, no one's assigned to help or to guide, no instruction. I even, as a side story, you had talked about being interrupted in an interview, I'm I'm sorry, in a meeting. I was thrown into giving a presentation. I had less than 48 hours to prepare. It was for something I'd never done. I had not received any training on it, and I was giving a presentation, and I was interrupted by two higher-ranking male officers, and one of them said, hold on, hold on, and then the other one said, you need to take this class for your personal and professional development. Oh, there is this expectation to come in and perform and to be competent. And even with the best diligent effort, I thought I was giving my best effort. It wasn't enough. And I was interrupted and told that I needed to take a different class to do better. It was a, an HR related kind of thing. So, yeah, well, you know, we, we mentioned go bro, go, that was a hashtag bro. No, <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah, that was unfortunate. Cool. 
Well, let me let me just give a couple of initial thoughts, and I know Dave has a lot uh, on you know this and related to the culture of the military as well. Um, but I, I think there are a number of problems um, within the organizations in terms of making erroneous assumptions, Nicole, about mentorship. And I think one of the biggies is that anybody can mentor, right? That everybody, you know, who enters the military, uh, I mean, mentoring is just obvious. It's easy. Everyone has a skill set. And I think that has really undermined excellent talent development uh, in the military specifically, because all the research would show that's just not true. There are some people that just are more skilled at mentoring. There are people who have uh, interpersonal and emotional traits that make them more effective in relationships. You know, emotional intelligence is one of the most important, right? These people have more empathy, more self-awareness, more warmth in their relationships. Those are people we all gravitate toward as mentors right? because they they have uh, the interpersonal skill set that makes them effective relationally. I think too often the military forgets that and they think of mentoring as just another technical, um, you know, execution thing in my my job uh, uh, requirement, and we don't. We don't select, we don't train, we don't prepare people for this, and rarely do we ever evaluate uh, carefully mentoring outcomes or how people are when it comes to developmental relationships. So a lot of that is our fault because of our you know, false assumptions about mentorship or lack of understanding of how important these relationships are. Um, and so I think that's a piece of it. The other piece is I think that the military is phobic about programs, right? Um, there have been a number of efforts in the military to sort of pair everyone, you know, and make sure everyone has mm -hmm. a mentor. And the net effect of that, because it's been so haphazard and, the, the, you know, the matching has been so thoughtless and mentors haven't been trained, um, the net effect of that has been to make people hate the idea of mentorship. It feels like an owner's mm -hmm. burden. Um, I don't really know what that means, but now you're assigning me to mentor someone and it just feels like another obligation. So mm -hmm. largely we've approached it the wrong way, you know, versus this aspirational thing that's kind of a delight to participate in and, mm -hmm. and I get all this extra training or preparation on how to do it and we reward people who are excellent mentors you really can change the culture if this thing is rewarded and affirmed and, and people feel they're, you know, they're, they're uh, honored for the great mentoring that they do. So I don't think we've done that enough, but Dave, other thoughts you have? Yeah, I think I, I largely agree. You know, Brad said, I, I would, you know, a couple of uh, nuances to that, I think from my own experience has been that, uh, you know, often mentoring is looked at, like Brad said, as an assumption that because you're an officer or a senior leader, that, that you can mentor, that you can do those things. And, you know, the reality is that we find in the, in the research is that people mentor in a couple of ways. One, they, they, they mentor in how they were mentored because that's all they know. Hmm. Um, or they, hopefully more more importantly that if they had a they had things that their mentor did those are the things that they use right to, to continue that on and to give back and and so i think that there's this um 
lack of this lack of training and education that, that goes with it and treating it like a core competency as opposed to an assumed trait or quality or skill that everybody has or anybody can have and mm -hmm. then the reality is brad said is that that is not the case right that and, and and what i think the other one that's really important to this is is understanding what is a mentor what are what's my role what are my functions and whether it's in a whether you're formally matched or paired up or or it's informally done, you know what am I supposed to be doing? What should I what should I be doing? And and where are there uh, ethical lines that we need to draw as well? And this often comes up. We get this question in the military quite a bit about uh, can I can I be a mentor to my di my direct reports, my subordinates who directly report me? If I'm writing evaluations on them, can I? Can I mentor them? Because there's this, again, this expectation that you're doing mentoring. And sometimes it's, it's explicitly said and written that you're mm -hmm. doing this mentoring. But, you know, when Brad and I will tell you all the different things you ought to be doing as a mentor, people are like, well, wait a minute, that, that might be showing favoritism towards somebody. And, and you're right, right. We have to be careful when it's direct reports as to how we're doing that. If we're writing evaluations and affecting their mm -hmm. promotion opportunities like that directly. So I think that's another piece of it that, that the military needs to be very, just put the boundaries in place and be very clear and explicit about what you should be doing and who you can do that for out there. Uh, but I think the training and education piece, I think is, again, we have to get past the assumption that it's out there or that you need a program necessarily to do it. Um, the, the making it a part of your culture and Brad, what he was talking about with rewards in particular, I think is so important because it, just like everything else in the military, you know, we, it's like, what do you value? Those things where I put resources or I put rewards to it, right? That's how I know you value it because you put, you know, a, a medal, a hung a medal on somebody for doing something. Mm -hmm. That's important, right? What they did, I know is important because you just did that. Or if you gave me time off. Uh, or something like that, right? The things that we have available to us in the military, I know that's important. And mm -hmm. what is the what is the what does the commander talk about? How often does the commander talk about mentoring, mentoring successes, things that he or she has noticed in the unit related to mentoring? How often does mentoring get brought up, you know, within the the officer corps, or the senior enlisted? Because again, I think. This is a great conversation where the wardroom, you know, the officers and the senior enlisted should be coming together to talk about this because they they both have the very natural ability to be doing lots of mentoring. Um, and how do you reward those people who are doing great things at it? Mm -hmm. Those are some really excellent points. And I think that you made a, a solid note about seeking mentorship outside of the rating chain, because I too have since I'm new in this role, I've gone and talked to my reader and, and I asked, do you know anyone that could act as a coach or a mentor to me that I can have questions and, and seek their advice that's in my time zone? Um, and he said, yeah, you can come to me anytime. And I thought that was so, he's very kind and I really appreciate that. But, you know, he's my direct reader. He's, I don't know if that's someone that I'd want to come to and, you know, address all of those little things. Uh, also, there's a sense of I'm mentoring someone because they came and asked me a question. That's what I've experienced where people think that we have a relationship just because I've asked a question or they provide some kind of instruction or advice on a particular situation and consider that mentorship. And it doesn't go very deep. It doesn't really help develop on a more personal or professional level. 
or or it's not very long lasting. So in my mind, thinking about what I've learned before about the difference between teaching, coaching, and mentoring, it really doesn't fall into that mentorship category. And I completely agree. If there was more of a a cultural reinforcement to have mentorship and for there to be rewards for that, it would be amazing. Or even handing it off, like perhaps my raider couldn't be my mentor, but maybe he knew someone else that could be, and they could kind of swap, you know, he could act as a mentor to somebody else and that sort of thing where we could establish those relationships and have the opportunity to grow outside of the rating chain, but hopefully develop those relationships a little bit more organically. I'm, I'm also in favor of a more formal mentorship program. I've never had the opportunity to experience that. I would, I would love to, but at this point, really, I'd just be happy to receive any mentorship. <laughs> yeah. And you, you, and, and by the way, there is a wonderful organization that I just want to give a shout out to for all the women listening. It's called um, Academy Women and Academy Women has a whole mentoring program and, and it's open to women from any service. And I, I just want to give them a shout out because they do arrange mentorships. And I, I think that can be really valuable. Um, but you get to one other really important point, Nicole, and that is Dave and Dave and I are really big on this. Um, and especially if you're a male, but, but I would say for anybody, don't call yourself someone's mentor. Uh, it's a terribly bad practice unless you're unless you're formally paired in a mentorship program and that's you know you you know each other as mentor and mentee if that's not the case and it's more of a, an organic workplace relationship um, let your let let the junior person call you their mentor let them decide don't don't assume that um, that comes with some real entitlement and privilege, um, you know, and, and as you said, maybe false assumptions about how this person sees you. So um, mm -hmm. stay away from self-labeling. Right. So on that topic of mentorship and advice for some new and young leaders, how can a mentee seeking a mentor, maybe at a new job or a new duty station, assess who may be a good mentor? I'm thinking about an article that you published um, addressing their functional mentorship skills or their foundational virtues and abilities. How can we assess who would be a, a good match for us? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's lots of ways. I think you could you could begin doing that. But I think first and foremost, with these organic, right, these organic ways to connect with somebody, if you're looking for a mentor, is who are people that are are doing things that that you're interested in, right? So if there's a particular area that you're you're looking to develop or to learn more about, or a career path, or a particular skill set, or somebody who does that really well, right, just look around and, and pay attention and notice that. Because I think that's, you know, also one of the best practices in terms of how do you connect with that person, especially if they're more senior to you. And I think this is always challenging for us when we're junior is uh, how do you approach a senior person to to ask for mentorship? Because right. that can be <laughs> such a big ask because you're asking for a relationship and it's like, wow, that can be if you don't have if you don't already have a good working relationship, that can be, you know, it's really asking for a lot. And so. But it's very different to come in and ask, hey, you know, I was really interested in um, in this particular career path. And I know you've been you've been doing work in this area for a long time. And, you know, would it be OK if if I could ask you a few questions? If I could I have a half hour of time and maybe we could have a cup of coffee and talk about that. 
that's a very different ask, right? It's one, it's mm -hmm. contextualized. And so it's very specific into what I'm asking for. And it's not this huge relationship. It's not a huge ask. If it if they decide or you decide between the two of you, you want to do something with that more later on, well, that's great, right? Mm -hmm. But it, you don't have to start out with the big ask. Start small, smart, start contextualized and very specific about what you're looking for. And, and just look around for those people that you would already admire. Um, and I would say the, the other group of people out there are sometimes, you know, just because when you get into an organization, a new unit, you can see that there are particular people that, you know, they kind of do a lot of mentoring and they're known for it, maybe even in, in your organization. That's another person maybe you want to think about, hey, is that somebody that would be, you know, would be useful for me to be working with them on a particular issue around mentoring? Brad? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I also would just look for those people, and I think Dave was really alluding to this, Nicole, that there are some people in your workplace, and we all know who these folks are, and Dave and I have described them as mentors of the moment. And what I mean by that, it's that, that person who stops when they see you on the way to the coffee room or whatever, and they just stop for five minutes, and they, they ask you questions. How are you doing? Um, or, hey, I saw you uh, give that presentation the other week, and it was really good. I really appreciated that. Um, or, you know, I was really interested in, you know, uh, what you've been working on lately. They, they just show interest, and, and they say things that are affirming. You know, it doesn't take much of their time. You know, that whole exchange took me three minutes maybe, but I just mm -hmm. made somebody's day right? Who's junior to me. So I would look for those mentor the moment oriented people that show genuine interest and, and concern because there's a good chance they're going to have the interpersonal skill to, to do the good mentoring um, mm -hmm. versus that reluctant person who will walk right by you without even looking at you. I mean, that's just mm -hmm. that's not the person I'm going to go to and initiate any kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. Those are great. Definitely pick up on those subtle cues of who's already engaging with you and showing that interpersonal connection. I love that. And I also really like the advice of just sitting down and asking for a cup of coffee to talk about something specific and establishing that relationship there and kind of testing the waters and see how that relationship builds. That kind of takes the pressure off of versus asking Will you be my mentor and be in this relationship? <laughs> yeah. Right, right. It's it's a small ask, and it doesn't come with obligation. And then the fun part of that is um, we know from human psychology that one fun interaction or one fun meeting often leads to an increase in mutual liking, right? And so mm -hmm. that person is going to be more likely to say yes to the next thing because you know mm -hmm. he or she really enjoyed that encounter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. So as a close, what advice do you have for junior leaders stepping into the workplace, maybe female leaders in particular or junior officers in the military? What advice do you have? Wow. Yeah. I, I, so much to start with. I would say one, uh, as I alluded to I, or, and talked about a little bit earlier about humility, the role of humility in leadership and I think often we, we hear uh, junior officers and senior officers talk about how they really appreciate that humble leader and, and think about what does that mean? How did they demonstrate that humility to you? What did, how, did they, uh, how did they perform that? What were the actions? What were the things they said and they did that really showed that they, and they were sincere, right? Authentic in, in doing that. 
It wasn't some sort of self-deprecating uh, humor or something. Um, because again, I think that showing genuine curiosity in others, right, shows that learning orientation and that means so much. The the other thing is that humility, um, I think kind of goes hand in hand with vulnerability. And we often mm -hmm. think about vulnerability as, is talked about in terms in around the military around weakness but vulnerability right is that again the the notion that i don't have all the answers and that i maybe i maybe i don't know here and i maybe i could be wrong or that i have to be somewhat vulnerable right in in showing that out there so that humility and vulnerability is what helps us to to connect right with our people and with our peers and and others out there in a, in a way that we get to know each other better and, and that's really going to lead to more effective leadership uh, and mentorship and allyship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I guess because we've been talking so much about mentoring, Nicole, my recommendation for a junior officer or, you know, a new person stepping in to leadership uh, early in the career is to really look beyond the idea of the single mentor. And I think that's a trap we fall into. You know, it's that very traditional notion of mentorship, that there's just mm -hmm. one mentor for me who's going to take me through all the challenges and all the chapters of my career. And we find that's just not helpful and it, and it doesn't work. So early in my career, I'd like to start collecting and, and deliberately constructing a network or what Dave and I call the constellation of, of mentors, right? These are, you know, people who uh, bring different kinds of expertise and experience, and they're all valuable. And I'd like to work on establishing relationships with several different people, um, recognizing that um, my if I've got this really powerful network, um, I'm in much better shape than if I only have one mentor. And, and especially for us in the military, right, we move every three or four years. And so mm -hmm. as I do that, I have an opportunity to constantly be updating and expanding my constellation. So mm -hmm. I think that's my advice for the, the junior person. That's wonderful. Thank you. So is there anything that you'd like to share with the listeners about your works or where they can find you? I will link to the Workplace Allies website in our show notes, but anything else that you'd like to share with them? I think, that's, I think that's probably the best place to see what we're up to, yeah. uh, the latest. Um, Brad and I write fairly frequently for Harvard Business Review. And so if you go to hbr.org, you can see a lot of the uh, the articles that we're writing. Of course, those are up on our website as well. And I encourage you to, if you get a chance to read Athena Rising um, or, or Good Guys, that, and again, they're both available through your favorite um, again, online retailer or your, your local independent books, bookstore out there. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Workplaceallies.com. You'll, you'll get a real sense of what Dave and I have been up to. Absolutely. Well, this has truly been a joy. I've learned so much and I'm sure that it will absolutely be a benefit to our listeners. Thank you for your generosity and your time and sharing your knowledge and expertise with us. Thanks for having us, Nicole. Happy to do it. And and you are an expert interviewer, Nicole. So kudos to you. <laughs> yeah. Good job. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Take care.